America Media leads the conversation with balance, sobriety, and depth. We know informed and charitable debate are possible in our church and in the country we love. We do it every day. Join us this Advent season. Visit americamagazine.org donate to make your gift. That's americamagazine.org donate. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Olga Segura. Hey, guys. And only Olga this week. Zach has once again left us. He really <laughs> he really enjoys abandoning us, and I, I feel really hurt by it, but whatever. Yeah. Um, but we will still have a great show in his absence. Yes, we will. What are we drinking this week, Olga? So this week, there there seems to be a lot of people in the office who have colds. This is true. Um, and we had our holiday party last week, so we figured that it would be nice to just have some tea. Yep. I definitely have been doing a lot of feasting and just want some nice warm chamomile to to soothe my my throat and my soul. So same. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> And who are we talking to, Olga? This week, we're talking with Kaya Oaks, who might sound familiar to some of our listeners slash readers because she is a contributing writer for America. And she wrote a book called The Nuns Are All Right, A New Generation of Believers, Seekers and Those in Between. Yes. And she recently wrote an article for America titled Why Non-Christian Seekers Are Trying Spiritual Direction. Um, And I was really excited to talk to her about this because, you know, as like a Catholic who finds it like kind of hard to get Mm -hmm. into this part of our tradition, I was kind of surprised to hear that it would be attractive to seekers who aren't aren't really attached to the faith in any way. So I kind of want to get an idea of what their motivations are and what, what they get out of spiritual direction when they're not necessarily Catholic. And we're super excited for this interview. But first, it's time for Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Olga? So Pope Francis has appointed the Filipino Cardinal Luis Tagle, who is the Archbishop of Manila, as the Prefect of the Congregation for the Evangelization of Peoples. Now, this is a pretty significant congregation because it's the missionary arm of the church and it oversees all of the work of the church in Africa, Asia and Oceania. Yeah. And so that is one third of the church's 4000 dioceses. Um, and Cardinal Tagle, if if you don't know him, he's kind of like the cutest cardinal. <laughs> he, re- he really, really like, is. He just exudes like joy and happiness, and he's a great, he's a great communicator, and he's someone who's pretty close uh, to Pope Francis. He, um, like Francis, is, was often seen um, riding around on buses and bikes in Manila, even as Archbishop there. And so he's he is someone that shares Pope Francis's vision for a church that is close to the people, um, that is close to the poor. And now he's going to bring that to, you know, that perspective to the heart of the church at the Vatican. And this is pretty significant because this congregation was created in 1622 and Tagle is only the second prelate from Asia to hold this position. And many in the church see this as, you know, 
they see this congregation as kind of an outdated Eurocentric conception of the church. So today, a lot of the places that are considered mission territory are where the church is striving. So to see someone like him appointed is a pretty huge deal. It is. And this office has gained importance under Pope Francis. It used to be seen um, the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith, so kind of like the enforcer of doctrine, used to be seen as kind of the number one office at the Vatican. But Pope Francis has really shifted that um, with his focus on evangelization. Um, So uh, Cardinal Tagle being appointed to this uh, congregation is seen by some Vatican watchers as a sign that he's being set up to maybe be Pope Francis's successor um, at the Vatican. What's our next story, Ashley? So you probably heard last week Nancy Pelosi uh, cited her Catholic faith when she was asked by a reporter um, whether she hates President Trump. So this was during a press conference when they were announcing um, that the House Democrats would be drafting articles for impeachment. And this reporter, who was citing a statement by a Republican lawmaker, um, which implied that the Democrats were only trying to impeach Trump because they hate him. Yes. And Nancy Pelosi was extremely passionate in her response. She said that she was raised in a Catholic house. She doesn't hate anybody. And quote, as a Catholic, I resent your using the word hate in a sentence that addresses me. I was raised in a way that is a heart full of love and always prayed for the president. I still pray for the president, which is why many of you might have seen the as a Catholic trending all over the place. Yes. So this went viral. Um, and it, I think it was it was striking to me because you often see um, the way that politicians talk about their their Catholic faith or anyway, whatever their faith tradition is in a kind of either like defensive way or they're picking and choosing a part of the faith tradition to justify something that they would probably do anyways. But this was her just, you know, going really back to the basics and, you know, the second most important commandment, according to Jesus, to love your neighbor um, and and to, and to love her neighbor despite having very deep political disagreements with him, in this case, Donald Trump. Yeah, no, that's a really great point, Ashley. I, I saw this as a little more, I was a little more cynical when I first started seeing everyone sort of reacting to this because I thought, okay, this is just another example of a politician just kind of getting really angry at the media. But just listening to you, you're absolutely right. Like, we don't often get a chance where we see, especially Catholic politicians say like, hey, let's actually live out the gospel. Like, I am called to love my enemy, even when it's extremely difficult to do this. Yeah, and in this current political environment, it is, it's countercultural to to say and even harder to live out. So kudos to Nancy Pelosi for, for making that go viral. <laughs> What's our next story, Olga? So our next story is coming out of California, where a Methodist church about 30 miles outside of L.A. is making news because they're featuring a nativity scene that shows Jesus, Mary and Joseph as refugees in cages. Yeah, it's a very striking image. If you haven't looked it up already, Um, they are each Mary, Joseph and Jesus are all in separate cages. And this is meant to evoke the situation at the southern border where families has have been separated as part of the Trump administration's immigration enforcement policy. Um, and some people were not happy with this depiction of the traditional nativity scene, right? Yeah. The church shared a picture of the the scene on their website and people were really furious. Some people said, you know, you shouldn't take the image of the Holy Family and politicize it. It's a really false analogy. And a lot of people were just other people really praised it and were moved to tears saying that, you know, 
it's really good to inspire conversation and people should be outraged. People should feel uncomfortable. And if this is making them think, then so be it. So it was kind of a little bit divided. Yeah, no, but I mean, we just talked about this last week. Mm -hmm. Pope Francis, you know, wrote a 3000 word document encouraging people to put up nativity scenes in their homes and in public spaces. And I, I, I did not share the anger that this inspired Mm -hmm. among many. Um, You know, the nativity scene is what we put out there to remind ourselves of the incarnation. And the incarnation is a completely scandalous and crazy thing. And it it, it can be, you know, the nativity scene does look rather peaceful and domestic. Mm -hmm. And so I think to kind of tweak it in a way that reminds us of how how scandalous Mm -hmm. Jesus coming into the human world into a poor family. Right. Um, I think that's a good a good thing for us. No, agreed. And I think the focus shouldn't be on, you know, let's not turn this into something political or is this too political? Instead, it should be what you know, what does it mean when we see Jesus, Mary and Joseph in cages? And what is this asking us? How are we supposed to be living out our lives as Christians this holiday season? And I think that is something we should all be thinking about much more deeply. What's our next story, Ashley? So as most people know, the gap between the rich and the poor in this country is growing. Um, But new research is showing that 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 income gap is also translating into a growing inequality in the way that people attend church. So those in the top income bracket are much more likely to go to church than those in the bottom quartile. Yeah. And this is this is extremely troubling to hear, because just from a social science perspective, when low income people aren't attending churches, they're missing out on a lot of the services that churches provide for people people in need. And it also makes you wonder, should churches be doing more to reach out to these communities if they're not physically going to church? Right. Like Pope Francis has called for a poor church for the poor. And and he means that literally. Mm-hmm. So um, and I think it's incumbent on Christians not to, you know, wait for these people to show up, but to to intentionally make uh, churches more welcoming and to go out and find people um, and bring them in. What's our last story, Olga? So Christmas can be a really difficult time for people who might have lost a relative or who might have lost their jobs. So a lot of parishes across the country have responded with blue Christmas services, which are initiatives that are going to provide a space for mourning, prayer and reflection in a communal setting. Yeah. So this is not exactly breaking news. Uh, Parishes have been doing this um, since the 90s, at least. Um, But a report in Crux caught my eye because it profiled um, our very own spiritual director, Father Eric Sundrup's new Mm -hmm. parish in Cincinnati, um, where last week they had one of these blue Christmas services um, that featured readings from scripture, some gentle Advent hymns um, and the lighting of candles to honor lost loved ones, jobs, health and joy. Um, And I really I love this idea. I, I have I've lost loved ones around the holidays before um, and kind of my default is to like kind of like lean into the holidays and not really give myself the time to just be sad. Um, so I think having something like this at at my local parish would be really helpful. And it's a really good reminder that even if you're not in a position to start one of these programs, you can still reach out to people over the holidays and offer them your prayers. So listeners, what are you doing around um, the holiday season, either to to take care of yourself or to reach out to friends and family who might be struggling? Uh, you can let us know on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical.
Joining us via Skype today is Kaya Oaks, a contributing writer for America who teaches writing at the University of California, Berkeley, and is the author of The Nuns Are All Right. Welcome to Jesuitical, Kaya. I'm so happy I was finally chosen to appear on Jesuitical. <laughs> well, we're glad that you're excited because we're really looking forward to talking with you about your article that you just recently wrote at America. So you wrote this piece on spiritual direction. Now, spiritual direction is meant to help a Christian grow in his or her relationship with God. So why are so many non-Christians seeking spiritual direction? Well, there's a couple of things that I discovered when I was writing this piece, which, by the way, I really loved working on. Um, it is exactly in my favorite place to write, which is at the intersection of secular culture and religious questions. And that's where a lot of the so-called nuns live, uh, the N-O-N-E-S, is sort of in this liminal space between a religious identity and a non-religious one. So part of why they're attracted to spiritual direction when they discover what it is, is the idea that they can talk about their questions and their doubts and their concerns and their feelings about religion without having to pass any kind of tests, <laughs> which right. they sometimes think that being religious involves, which it doesn't. So yeah, they're very curious about spaces where they can be doubters and seekers, and this is a perfect space for that. So spiritual direction is not therapy, and it's not quite prayer. So can you give us kind of what your definition of what spiritual direction entails and what its purpose is? Yeah, spiritual direction is really just guided conversations about a person's faith life. St. Ignatius designed it to be a way to help people get closer to God. And so it's a really great thing for people to explore who feel marginalized by religion for one reason or another, because it's often a and this is a difficult term to use at Berkeley, but a safe space, quote-unquote. Mm -hmm. We get into trouble for saying that here. Um, but it is really a safe space for people to kind of open up and say that they want to have a relationship with God and what does that mean for them and how they define God and who is God to them and how do they experience the divine. So being a nun doesn't mean you have no faith or no relationship with God. It, it means you, you're right. not attached to a specific religious tradition. Is, is that right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So a nun doesn't mean that you're an atheist and it doesn't mean that you're an agnostic. And we know that actually only something like three to five percent of people who describe themselves as nuns are atheists or agnostics. Mm -hmm. Most of them are actually people who do believe in God, but they don't belong to a specific church or religious tradition. So, Kyle, what makes Ignatian spiritual direction unique? Does it have to include Jesus, or is it something that's modified for seekers? It can be modified for seekers. Um, it does, in the Ignatian tradition, people do something called the spiritual exercises, which uh, many people who read America would be familiar with, but some Catholics have never experienced which is where you do a series of prayers where you imagine yourself in conversation with Jesus or encountering Jesus. Uh, and that can be modified for people who are seekers in the sense that you can ask them more about transcendent experiences or experiences when they felt a higher power in, at work in their lives or marveled at some sort of creation. Um, often conversations about nature are a good place to start with people because that's a kind of common experience everybody has. So have you heard from anyone um, who's kind of uncomfortable with that 
modification of a Christian practice, like taking Jesus out of it um, and and doing this kind of detached from the the faith tradition more broadly? Yeah, I mean, I always hear from people like that because of, you know, being on the internet. And (laughs) (laughs) but I think that the reception to the article has been really positive because I think spiritual directors tend to be people who want to meet people who are not necessarily people they'd meet in church. Um, So a lot of spiritual directors have responded to the article and been kind of excited by it, thinking like, wow, this is a whole group of people that we would love to work with because they seem like they're sincerely looking for something. Um, And then there's been, you know, a little bit of like, how dare you, young lady? Um, (laughs) But that's just being a woman on the internet. So, yeah. You mentioned that, you know, the conversations can focus on nature or or they can focus on sort of transcendental experiences. But can you give us some examples of the kind of question a director might ask a seeker during this direction? And how are these questions different from what a Catholic may be asked? Mm -hmm. Well, I have a personal experience I can share with you guys that I'm sure he wouldn't mind, but my husband's non-religious And uh, I took him to spiritual direction one time with my former spiritual director, who is a sister of St. Joseph, uh, because I just wanted him to understand what spiritual direction was, since it was really important to me. And she asked him questions like, you know, if you don't believe in God because he's an agnostic, so if you're not sure what God is, have you ever had an experience that felt like something bigger than you? Or how would you describe, where do you encounter things that feel like something's moving in your life that's not a human uh, force. Um, And so she talked about music because he's a musician Mm. and how music is a form of creativity where musicians often feel that they're channeling something. And so she used that as a metaphor to help him kind of articulate uh, what he did and didn't believe in. And it was a really... Uh, informative hour. (laughs) I think I learned a lot in that hour too. So that example makes clear something you also talk about in your in your article um, that spiritual direction for nuns or seekers um, is not about converting them necessarily. But is there any tension between, you know, not wanting to proselytize, but also being called as Catholics to evangelize others? Um, How do you how do you balance creating that welcoming environment um, and meeting them where they're at with, you know, that other imperative of bringing people closer to Christ? That's a really good question. So part of why I pitched this story to Carrie Weber was because I spent the last semester, uh, spring semester, training as a spiritual director at the Jesuit School of Theology here in Berkeley. So I took a spiritual directing co- direction course in my quote-unquote spare time, and um, my classmates were mostly seminarians, and they were all planning to go work for the church in one way or another. And so when I would bring up things like, you know, the problem with using Jesus language for some people is that they they find that to be very evangelical, and it can be off-putting to people who are not familiar with the dialogue of religion. And my classmates would just look at me like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? We can't mm-hmm. talk about Jesus. It's not that you can't. It's just that sometimes people get scared off by that. So why don't we find other ways to invite them into conversation and then eventually move the needle onto the Jesus side of the of the dial. 
Yeah. So um, it, it, what is yeah. that the end game, or is there, or does the end game or purpose vary depending on who's coming in for this direction? It's totally individual. In that way, it's like therapy, right? Mm-hmm. The purpose of therapy is to help people to overcome their struggles with self-doubt or anxiety or depression or to learn to live with those conditions and make them more manageable. And in spiritual direction, we're trying to move people closer to their relationship with God, their understanding of how God's moving in their lives. And Jesus, for many people, is part of that. But for many people, maybe it's Mary more than Jesus, or maybe it's a saint, or maybe it's Muhammad or Moses, if they're Jewish or Muslim, because there is spiritual direction in interfaith traditions, too. How do you see this work of bringing spiritual direction um, to nuns or seekers? Is it is it part of a wider project of yours to maybe democratize spiritual direction um, or make it a little bit more flexible? Yeah, I mean, you know, you asked earlier if part of it, why it's not a form of evangelization. And for me personally, the reason why it's not is because I think that uh, evangelization has to be handled very carefully Um, with people who are not religious because it can scare them off. So this is a way for people to explore questions and doubts without feeling like that they have to go through a conversion at the end of it. And so, yeah, I do want to make more people aware of this who are not Catholic. Um, I had a lot of interest in people who wanted to do spiritual direction who were kind of lapsed evangelicals in particular. For some reason, they are really people who want to talk about their relationship with God because they come from this really strict kind of fundamentalist religious background, and they're trying to get away from that. So spiritual direction is sort of a way for them to grapple with what has happened in their faith lives. You mentioned earlier that spiritual direction isn't therapy, but that in it, it's kind of like therapy and that it's pretty, I don't want to say individualistic because that kind of has a negative connotation, but it is it is something that, um, you know, kind of is shaped for the individual. Um, and is there a risk of it becoming individualistic? Um, and, you know, I, I, as a Catholic, it, it's hard for me to think about faith in a way that's just just your one-on-one relationship with God. It's always, for me, you know, it needs to be in a communal context. So, like, is, is there a way to, like, prevent that from happening or to to kind of integrate it into another, into a more communal experience? Mm-hmm. That's a really good question. One of the things that came up in the in the people that I spoke to for the article was one of them is Casper Turquil, who does the Harry Potter and the Sacred Texts podcast. And, and he is a nun who discovered spiritual direction while getting an MDiv at Harvard, which isn't a kind of typical thing for a non-religious person to do. But he's a real seeker, and he finds that that podcast is using the Harry Potter books as a kind of text to help create community. In other words, they do Lexio Divina with Harry Potter. They do um, ancient, what you know, Christian traditions. They integrate those into a secular text in a way that helps people who are not familiar with Christian texts to understand how the text can be a way that we bond as a community. So like you think of things like fandoms 
I don't know, what are the texts of today, TV shows, social media, et cetera. And like, can you make a space for community and the sacred in those things? That's a big question, Mark, that I wasn't able to answer in this article. But I think that Casper's experience points to people really craving that. And so in what ways can we as Catholics make space for people who want community um, but don't feel like they're ready to convert yet? That's a good question. So, Kaya, how did spiritual direction change the lives of the nuns or seekers you met? And sort of why does it matter that people have access to spiritual direction? I think it's important for people who have that kind of restlessness, that classic Augustine, St. Augustine talks about that, our hearts are restless until they rest in God. And some people have that restlessness, but they don't name it God. They have that sense of like, and I think this is something that you all as millennials or me as a Gen Xer or my students who are Gen Z, whatever, the mm-hmm. Zoomers, the, <laughs> they don't know what they want to be called. I've asked them <laughs> and they can't decide. But that what we all sort of like share is that we're, we're three generations that were very disenfranchised. We have less than our parents had. We all struggle with career. We all struggle with finding our a way to be rooted and um and that i think that spiritual direction for people who have those those problems on top of a spiritual quest that's that's led them into trying out different churches maybe or trying out different kinds of religion but never finding one that quite feels like it's calling to their soul is that spiritual direction can be transformative in helping them name what it is that they want so that they can then go out and find that more specifically. Yeah. You mentioned getting training um, in spiritual direction, but you've also gone to a spiritual director yourself. Um, how, how has that changed, changed your own life and your, your relationship to God and to the church? Um, it's, been, it's been an adventure, let's put it that way. <laughs> I wrote a book some years ago uh, in which I wrote about my first experience of spiritual direction was with this really young Jesuit um, who was here in the Bay Area uh, doing his formation and and just like mistaking my feelings about my longing for religion with getting a crush on a priest. (laughs) (laughs) Helpful. (laughs) Yeah. Luckily, I was able to sort that out. Um, But, and it turned out it was just that I actually wanted to be Catholic, you know, again, and like he was helping me with that. And so, um, But that's the kind of, that was a moment when I realized that like these kind of in-depth, intense conversations about faith are actually guiding us to something. So for me, it was the beginning of my career as a religion writer was in spiritual direction because I realized that I was articulating things that other people could relate to, that other people had interest in, in ways that people were, you know, wanted to read. And so I was very lucky that way. But I'm curious, like, if either of you do it, because you're working, you know, in church ministry, sort of, and you're doing this podcast, do you think of this as a form of spiritual direction sometimes? Um, I do. I know that Father Sundrup doesn't like it when we call what we our conversations, our weekly conversations with him, spiritual direction. But I do see mm-hmm. it as a form of not just my conversations with him alone, but just the conversations that I have with my co-host, because this is a space where we can talk about not just our faith lives, but what it means to be young people in a church that's going through a lot of different changes. Um, so I mm-hmm. definitely see it as a 
kind of spiritual direction. Oh, yeah. No, I would agree. And it, you know, I, I'm someone who does need like external prompting to have these conversations. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, having the podcast each week where I am, you know, forced to articulate where where I am seeing God in my life um, has been helpful. Um, mm -hmm. I haven't ever had formal spiritual direction um, yet, but it is something that there's this nagging voice in my head that may or may not be God saying I should <laughs> I should check it out. <laughs> I did I did try to have a spiritual director, but we just didn't vibe and I just couldn't go back. I was like, I will yeah. I don't feel comfortable just being doubtful with you and then so I never went back. But that could yeah. just be that I just need to find the right one. Yeah. I've done plenty of therapy and so I know like it makes me <laughs> nervous because I'm a perfectionist mm -hmm. and I feel like that would just be like ten times of like nerve making <laughs> with talking about my faith. Um so there definitely is um some nervousness about it, but also curiosity. Yeah. <laughs> you shouldn't be nervous at all because it is also about finding the right person. Like mm -hmm. so I see a therapist and a spiritual director because mm -hmm. I need a lot of help. <laughs> Um, and I occasionally, I accidentally double booked on the same day with them a couple weeks ago. And I'm like, this is too much. I'm not that interesting. Um, but the thing is like what I do, I, it took a lot of tries with a lot of the wrong people before mm -hmm. I found this, this combination where I can talk to them about each other too mm -hmm. and say, oh, well, like this is going on in my spiritual life, but this is going on in my psychological life and that they don't. They do overlap, but they are separate and should be separate. It's kind of like talking about religion and politics. Like, ideally, they should be separate, but unfortunately, <laughs> they often intersect. Right, right. Kaya, thank you so much for this conversation. We do have one final question before we let you go that we ask all of our guests. If you could canonize anyone, Catholic or not, living or dead, who would it be and why? Um, you know, I listened to this show and I completely forgot about that question. <laughs> and like now I'm like, oh no, oh gosh, I've totally forgotten. Um, but I guess I've been thinking a lot about my dad who died when I was very young and his religious faith uh, and how strong and powerful it was and how much of it I inherited somewhat accidentally because he wasn't around to give it to me. And so I would canonize uh, Leo Emerson Oaks Jr. for that reason. Okay, so St. Leo. <laughs> mm -hmm. So Kaya, where can our listeners check out your work? Well, I am a contributing writer to America Magazine, and I also occasionally write for other places, but the best place to find me is probably on Twitter at Kaya Oaks, K-A-Y-A-O-A-K-E-S. Awesome. Thanks, Kaya. Thank you. looking for something to add to your spiritual practice this Advent season, you can check out The Word, a podcast of scripture-based reflections from America. Um, we are publishing episodes every day throughout Advent, and next week, yours truly will be the one reading those. So you can subscribe and listen to The Word wherever you get your favorite podcasts. 
And now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Olga? So I've got a desolation this week. I've been dealing with some minor health issues over the past few weeks, and my fiancé has, for weeks, actually longer than the time it's taken me to go to the doctor, has just really been kind of pushing me to go to the doctor and to take care of myself. And... Every time we'd had this conversation, I'd be really stubborn and just kind of push it off and just avoid listening to him. Um, And then I got to the point last week where I was just really burned out physically and mentally. And the desolation for me is just I'm so good at prioritizing the, you know, the health of my loved ones. But when it comes to myself, I've just been kind of throwing it to the wayside and just kind of thinking like, oh, I'm going to be young and I, I don't have to take these things seriously. But just the desolation has just been that it's caused a bit of a riff in my relationship with my fiance because it's pushed me to the point where I'm so focused on avoiding my own health issues that I'm not communicating with my partner. And I've realized it's taken me a few days to realize that he's coming from a place of love. And for me to be so stubborn and so unwilling to engage with him in this way is just blocking all of that off. And it's that's been my desolation this week. Yeah, I definitely have the same like avoidance issues when it comes to taking care of my physical health i'm just like yeah if i don't go to the doctor you can't tell me anything's wrong that's exactly honestly that's one of the things i told him i was like i don't want to know if there's something wrong with me and he's just like you need to take care of yourself i want you to be around so ashley we need to listen to our loved ones (laughs) what do you have this week um i i have a consolation it's another one of those sad consolations um so last week uh rather really unexpectedly uh, one of my good friends from college passed away um and it was it was on the two-year anniversary of my uncle passing away and I was just like hit with this like overwhelming grief and pain um for losing these people in such senseless ways um but I also had this like extreme confidence and this happened with my uncle too and it happened with my friend John I just like knew beyond a doubt that like he was with God like I just knew that and I knew that he was praying for me and that I could pray to him um and that that feeling prompted these like me to reflect on the fact that like I do not have that own confidence about my own relationship with God um and so I was talking to Father Sandrup about this, and he was like, so, like, if you think God's going to, like, forgive them despite their flaws, like, you know, you have your own separate God, and that would be weird, <laughs> or or, or God is is just as loving <laughs> and forgiving of you as he is of, of the people that you love. Um, so it's, I, I don't exactly, like— it's hard for me to still have that same level of hope for myself that I have for my loved ones. But um, going through these losses did kind of prompt me to like think about, you know, being a little bit more forgiving of myself and gentle on myself um, and, and having the same hope for my relationship with God that I that I have for for people I care about. So, well, yeah. I'm sorry to hear. I'm really sorry to hear about your friend passing. Yeah. Um, that's really difficult for you to have to deal with. But it is really beautiful to see you talk about your relationship with God in that way and to know that, yes, Ashley, God will (laughs) forgive you for your flaws because you are flawed, but you are great. And he knows this. Thanks, Olga. All right, I'll get us out of here. Jesuitical is produced by Eloise Blondio. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. Production help from Izzy Senecal and Tucker Redding. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. 
you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loeschert Studio at American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Olga Segura. We'll see you next week. <laughs>